0: Nick, I realized that as we were recording these podcasts stating how we don't know how to ultrasound, we're also interviewing for MFM fellowship positions.
1: That's right. At least I know how to put my hand on the probe and know which way the little button means according to the screen. So I guess that's a start, but where we go from there, I'm not quite sure.
0: Actually, I just want to highlight to all of our potential fellowship interviewers that we may have a leg up because we've been using the OBG's first second trimester atlas.
1: The second trimester atlas from the OBG project is an excellent resource that shows you all normal images for the second trimester anatomy scan.
0: If you're a chief resident like Nick and I, you can also go on to the OBG Project. You can find a link on our website, sign up for absolutely free for one year, and have awesome access to all of their articles, information, as well as emails that will give you the latest updates to practice guidelines and research.
1: Cree Check out the sidebar and sign up for free one year of the OBG First.
0: Welcome back, guys. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is
1: Criaz Over Coffee. Coffee. Today, we're going to talk about diagnostic imaging during pregnancy and lactation. Our learning objectives for today are going to be to review the safety, available data, and concerns surrounding different modes of diagnostic imaging in pregnancy and lactating women, including for ultrasound, MRI, ionizing radiation, and nuclear medicine studies. We're also going to intersperse that with the basics of radiology, including the measurement of ionizing radiation exposure, acceptable doses in pregnancy, and the potential effects of ionizing radiation. And finally, we'll review where applicable the safety of contrast media and various imaging studies during both pregnancy and lactation. Faye, you know, I think one of the most common things that I will get called about from like an outside hospital calling into our emergency department or even from our own radiology department every now and then is whether something is safe to do during pregnancy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, diagnostic imaging is definitely a source of confusion during pregnancy and lactation. I understand how as providers we want to be cognizant of the mother and the fetus or the infant and sometimes we may be too wary and withhold imaging that may be helpful for pregnant or lactating mothers. The nice thing is ACOG actually has a committee opinion, a committee opinion 723, which outlines many of the most common imaging modalities that can be used and the evidence of safety or harm that may exist within these types of imaging. And we also will talk about the considerations for each of these tests, including the maximum advisable radiation doses. So today we're going to talk about some of the major types of imaging studies. So let's start with um, one that is tried and true um, in our pregnant women, which is ultrasound.
1: Ultrasound is sonography, right? So it utilizes sound waves to produce a visible image. And this is nice because it's not a form of ionizing radiation. Thus, it's considered to be the safest mode of imaging in pregnancy and lactation. There have been no reported ill effects of sonography in pregnancy, including for studies like duplex Doppler imaging. However, ACOG still recommends sticking to what they call the ALARA principle, A-L-A-R-A. That's an acronym for as low as reasonably achievable to minimize any potential untoward effects of ultrasound. The theoretical effects of ultrasounds in a bad way on pregnancy is that at peak intensity with color or spectral flow Doppler, there can be a theoretical temperature increase. And if you have something focused on the fetus, there may be a focal point where a temperature increase can be as high as two degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. It's unlikely that that temperature increase would be sustained at any level to cause harm to the fetus, but for this reason, even ultrasound exposure should be used judiciously.
0: So basically, don't put the baby in a jacuzzi situation.
1: Basically. Faye, what about MRI?
0: Yes, so in a lot of our pregnant patients, we tend to use MRI instead of CT scans, for example, to look at certain structures. Similar to ultrasound, mri allows for visualization of soft tissue structures, um, but unlike ultrasound, MRI is not operator-dependent, so the pickup rate for certain pathologies like appendicitis tends to be higher. Um, And there's no special contraindication or consideration in pregnancy for non-con MRIs, other than the usual screening surrounding metal or magnet-sensitive implants and things like pacemakers. Um, And in most cases, non-con MRI is sufficient for diagnosis. However, Sometimes the diagnosis or studies may be improved by the use of gadolinium-based contrast for which there is uncertainty regarding um, its effects on the fetus. I didn't really know what gadolinium was. So (laughs) gadolinium is actually a water-soluble chemical which can cross the placenta into fetal circulation. Free gadolinium can be toxic, so it is bound or chelated when administered for studies. And there is concern that since this bound gadolinium can enter fetal circulation, it can recycle in the fetal circulation and can potentially sit for long enough time that the gadolinium could disassociate and become free and thus becoming toxic for the fetus. The Committee Opinion 723 reports on two studies looking at gadolinium. One is a prospective study of 26 women who received gadolinium in the first trimester, and this reported no adverse effect. A large retrospective database study looking at over 1,700 women who received gadolinium in the first trimester compared to women who did not receive MRI or contrast, did show higher relative risks of stillbirth, neonatal death, and rheumatologic or inflammatory skin conditions in the neonates. However, you know, we have to argue about whether or not this is actually an appropriate comparison because potentially there could be something going on with these women who required MRIs as opposed to a woman who did not require an MRI during her pregnancy. That being said, given at least the concern for a possible poor outcome, gadolinium-based contrast should be limited in use to cases where there is an absolutely clear benefit to its administration in pregnant women gadolinium's water solubility makes it okay to give during lactation, as if we remember our conversation with Dr. Cleary back on our breastfeeding episodes, less than 0.04% of a dose of gadolinium will be excreted into the breast milk in the first 24 hours, and less than 1% of this will actually be absorbed into the infant's GI tract. Therefore, breastfeeding should not be interrupted after a woman receives gadolinium-based contrast.
1: No, that's really interesting, Faye, especially the kind of stuff about gadolinium. Like, I had no idea that some of this chemistry, the organic chemistry of it all would come back to haunt, haunt us. us. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of amazing, actually, that we said that <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Nick, let's talk about the studies that I'm sure most people came here to listen to because I think a lot of people know that ultrasound and MRI are safe in pregnancy. But I think the biggest questions we get are about studies that require ionizing radiation, so things like CT scans or x-rays.
1: Yeah, so before we move on to talking about ionizing radiation studies, we have to talk about some vocabulary about the measurement of radiation, because there's a lot of like, you know, people throw around like you were exposed to radiation or you got this dose of radiation. And actually, those words in scientific sense have meaning to them. So exposure is the number of ions produced by radiation in the form of X-rays or gamma rays per measured kilogram of air. So like clinically, this isn't really a useful measure. Um, It's measured in something called Rentgen units, which is a person's name. I don't really know. But
0: how much exactly is a kilogram of air?
1: Yeah, quite a bit of air, I would imagine, (laughs) Um, unless it's compressed air, but we won't go there. The next is the dose of radiation, and this is really the one that we focus most on. The dose of radiation is the amount of energy deposited per kilogram of tissue. So now we've taken it out of the air, the exposure, and we're focusing on the dose that's actually administered to tissue. This is what we consider when we talk about radiation in pregnancy and is measured in a unit called rads or in grays, and rads and grays are interchangeable. 100 rad is equivalent to one gray. The relative effective dose is another measurement that can be used and is the amount of energy deposited per kilogram of tissue but then gets normalized for biological effectiveness or basically how much penetrates and how much it really affects that tissue. This is something measured in a unit called Rentgen Equivalent Men or REM for short as well as something called sievert units. And it's something that's more, again, the domain of radiation physicists as opposed to OBGYNs. Um, But again, what we want to track over the course of a pregnancy and what we have the good data on is somebody's total dose of radiation. The background dose of radiation to a fetus during pregnancy is around 1 milligray for the entire gestation. Committee Opinion 723 is an excellent table comparing different studies and the expected radiation to the fetus from those studies. They range from 1,000th of a milligray for chest x-rays and head and neck CTs or mammography. And then there are the higher end of these studies, such as CTs of the abdomen or pelvis or PET scans, that can expose a fetus from somewhere between 10 and 50 milligray. The risk of radiation exposure of a developing fetus depends not only on the dose of radiation, but also depends on the gestational age at which the exposure occurs. In the first zero to two weeks after fertilization, prior to implantation, an exposure of 50 to 100 milligray can cause an all or none effect generally, meaning that the pregnancy will result in miscarriage or there likely will be no consequence at all. During organogenesis, or two to eight weeks post-fertilization, this is when the risk of congenital anomalies or growth restriction can be seen. But these were at doses of 200 to 250 milligray, and as you recall, the abdominal or pelvic CT carries a dose of around 10 to 50 milligray.
0: And the x-rays, you said, are 1,000th of a milligram, exactly. correct? Exactly.
1: So, no, again, we're talking, again, you have to think about the doses and also think about why you need the study because you don't want to withhold it because, again, the evidence of harm is at much, much higher doses. I will say, though, that the risk of severe intellectual dis- deficit or microcephaly is most prominent around 8 to 15 weeks, and that has been recorded somewhere between doses of 60 to 300 milligray and there's an estimated 25-point IQ loss per 1,000 mg of exposure during this time period. There's a lower risk of severe intellectual disability that may persist through 25 weeks of gestation, though again with exposures of 250 mg or more. And per the committee opinion, actually, the lowest documented dose that produced a severe intellectual disability in a fetus was 610 milligray. Um, And this was a study that actually was based on survivors of atomic bombs. So, again, we don't have a lot of great data to go off of with respect to radiation exposure. We know that it's harmful, but, again, a lot of our best data came out of the atomic bomb era. Faye. What if we look beyond intellectual deficits or congenital anomalies? Are there other risks that we should counsel patients about with respect to radiation exposure?
0: Absolutely. So... Other risks that you may place the fetus at is actually the risk of childhood cancer, so after the fetus leaves the womb. With respect to leukemia, it's estimated that the risk of childhood leukemia increases one and a half to two-fold with a 10 to 20 milligrade dose over a background leukemia risk of one in 3,000. So that means you're increasing their risk from one in 3,000 to one and a half in 3,000 or two in 3,000. Radiologists and radiation physicists can help to calculate doses for patients exposed to multiple studies or with occupational hazards. That said, in comparing the doses of many of these studies to the doses demonstrated to cause fetal harm, the doses in usual radiographic studies is much, much lower. ACOG states that critical imaging studies should not be withheld from pregnant patients if they are needed to make a diagnosis. The next thing that I wanted to talk about was contrast, um, because sometimes you may need to give a pregnant patient contrast with their CT scans to be absolutely able to see certain soft structures within the abdomen. With contrast, there is oral, there's rectal, and there's IV. In terms of oral and rectal contrast, these pose no real or theoretical harm to pregnant or lactating mothers and their infants. So these should be Okay. IV contrast tends to be iodinated but is also water-soluble, so just like gadolinium, in pregnant patients this can cross that placenta. Animal studies have actually shown no teratogenic effects from its use, but it is recommended to limit use of iodinated contrast unless absolutely necessary. Similar to gadolinium, though, because of its water solubility, iodinated contrast is excreted minimally in the breast milk, and breastfeeding should be continued without interruption if a lactating woman has had an imaging study with iodinated contrast. So we've talked about um, ultrasounds, MRIs, or ionizing radiation studies. I guess that kind of leaves us um, with our last type, which is nuclear medicine studies.
1: Yeah, I mean, nuclear medicine studies, we don't tend to come into contact with as much, I would say, in pregnancy and lactation, but occasionally you may have a patient that you send for a VQ scan or a thyroid scan or bone scan, Um, and these can be variable in their potential effects on fetus or lactating infants or breastfeeding infants. The most common radioisotope used for these nuclear medicine studies is technetium-99, and it actually has been pretty well studied. It has a really short half-life of only six hours, um, and additionally, it only emits gamma rays. So because of these two characteristics, again, the short half-life as well as pure gamma ray emission it's generally accepted as safe to use when indicated in pregnancy. On the other hand, radioactive iodine, which is used for thyroid scans, readily crosses the placenta, has a half-life of eight days, and has known adverse effects on the the fetal thyroid. Thus, it's contraindicated for use in pregnancy and is also recommended against use in breastfeeding mothers until breast milk has been cleared of the radioisotope.
0: All right, Nick. So we've talked about all of our imaging studies and their effects. Um, Let's go ahead and sum up.
1: Perfect. So first, we wanted to stress the fact, again, that diagnostic imaging can be a source of confusion, but... Necessary imaging should not be withheld from a pregnant patient. Um, So as you're consulting for these questions, be sure to stress that point with your colleagues.
0: The first type of imaging study we talked about was ultrasounds, which produces sound waves to give us a visual image and does not produce any kind of ionizing radiation and is considered the safest mode of imaging in pregnancy. However, we should still stick to the ALARA principle or the as low as reasonably achievable principle.
1: Similarly to ultrasound, MRI allows for visualization of soft tissue structures and is not operator dependent, so the pickup rates for certain pathologies tend to be higher. In most cases, non-con MRI is sufficient, but sometimes you may need to use gadolinium-based contrast, for which there's really uncertainty regarding fetal effects. Given the concern for potential poor outcomes associated with gadolinium, it should be limited in use to cases where there's an absolute benefit. It is okay, though, to use in breastfeeding because gadolinium is water-soluble and not fat-soluble, so there's minimal excretion in breast milk.
0: We then talked about imaging studies that do have ionizing radiation, such as CTs and X-rays, and Nick gave a good summary of our definitions of exposure, dose, and relative effective dose. And overall, what we want to do is look at the overall dose that a fetus is exposed to during pregnancy. We also highlighted that the risk of radiation exposure depends on the dose amount, but also on the timing of exposure.
1: Finally, we looked at nuclear medicine studies and again mentioned that the radioisotope is an important consideration. Technetium-99 is generally considered as acceptable to use in pregnancy. On the other hand, radioactive iodine, is considered contraindicated in pregnancy and lactation.
0: The takeaway point to all of this is that you should not withhold a necessary scan from a pregnant woman.
1: Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee.
0: If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go on to Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any other of your podcatchers and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: Come find us online. Twitter at CreugsOverCoff1, Facebook at Creugs Over Coffee, Instagram at Over Coffee, or on Patreon, where you can get a shout out, cool swag, or exclusive content for a sponsorship on the show, www.patreon.com slash CreugsOverCoffee.
0: For any adjunct learning materials like charts, extra reading materials, and if you're a visual learner, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creugsOverCoffee.com.
1: If you have a correction to this show today or a previous show, an idea for a future show, or just want to say hi, send us an email. Creeog Zivercoffee at gmail.com.